that more of a uh, a physical thing. I'll tend to watch a YouTube video on mm. how to do it. <laughs> like, go on a tutorial and then okay, all right, all right, let me try that again. Okay, let me check a different tutorial. All right, now I got it. Totally. Or if I'm if I'm following um, a set of instructions and I'm getting it, like if it's a new thing I bought, yeah. like all right, I'm following these. I'll keep reading. But once I get to a point where I'm like, this is too much stuff. I can't take it all in. Then I stop and I just like I'll figure it out. Right. As I go along. Uh, the Tribes of Babel podcast. Nice. Um, and as as you know, um, I wanted to talk about basically the interplay between language and identity and sense of you know who you are. Right. So um, could you tell us a little bit about who you are? Well, I mean, well, I'm no expert in, in the topic or anything. I, I do uh, live a life that is uh, 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 bilingual. Uh, uh, my name is Kevin, and I am an English teacher in Japan at a school for uh, Korean minority, for the Korean minority population. So uh, in my job, I sit in meetings that are conducted in Korean and in Japanese, never in English. I think that's already a super interesting kind of community that probably a lot of people, even in Japan, are unaware of. Right. It's true. And the fact that it is, uh, it is to the point that I actually end up need, needing a bit of a decompression after I leave work because I, I find myself, for example, when I go to the convenience store, you know, saying, come oh, to the to the person behind the counter because I've spent all day in this sort of like, Korean immersion. Yeah, I could totally see that. And I, I don't really speak Korean, honestly, but, you know, because of the, the you know, the greetings and just sort of the day-to-day -day things that you say to one another are all conducted in that language where I work. And then I leave and I'm in yet a different language until I get home. Yeah, it's funny that um, greetings and stuff like that, like saying thank you or hello or goodbye, like even without speaking a language at all, those are like the first things you can learn. Right. And they're the things you get to use all the time. So you cannot know 99% of a language and yet speak it, so to speak, all the time. Whoops. In the sense of, um, of like, greet people in it and thank people in it without knowing how to say anything else. Oh, exactly. So, yeah. Well, and in fact, I, one clear example of that is, uh, I don't know, I'm sure your Japanese has improved quite a bit since you've been in Japan. But when you first came here, I don't know what your Japanese level was, but you probably noticed right away that taxi drivers were always amazed at how good your Japanese was. And I finally told someone once, I was like, it's not that my Japanese is good. It's really not. It's just that every taxi driver asks me the same questions. We have the same conversation. Yeah. And I've gotten really good at that conversation. Yeah. And so it's true. If you watched me talking to a taxi driver 10 years ago, you would have thought like, man, that Japanese, that guy's Japanese is really good. It, it was not. But, that's but my, really my taxi ride Japanese was really, really on fleek. Yeah, no, that's a really, really good point. Uh, I could totally see that. I hadn't thought about taxi driver specifically, but I think there's a lot of conversations. I think speaking a second language or living in a country where your native language is not the dominant language really shows you how many conversations in life are repetitive, are the same conversation over and over and over. Right. I think sometimes in your native language, you're not as aware of, hey, I've only used the same three dozen words all day today or right. again and again this week but you really notice it when it's the second language i also think 
that was one of the things that hit me with reverse culture shock when I went home was that I felt like my day-to-day -day life was, it was like a suddenly going back and playing at the beginning level of a video game. How so? So, you know, okay, for example, uh, one thing that happened to me when I'd first gone back is I needed to rent a car from the airport. And I remember sitting there, I sat down in the chair at the airport there in front of the counter, in front of the rental counter. And I was going over for a moment, like all the vocabulary I would need. And I went to pull out my book before I, before I realized, and I was there for like three minutes thinking about things I needed to say before I realized, oh wait, this is all in my language. I don't need to worry about this at all. <clears throat> and I was like, oh, well, that's just, why did I, why did I ever have trouble with anything before? Like once I had gone home, just like, it was, everything was just so easy. Yeah. I totally understand. I, I think it, uh, especially with dealing with bureaucracy, the, the bureaucratic concerns, like you have to do a lot of stuff um, in a, when you're living in a foreign country, like renew your visa or fill out paperwork that is inherently unpleasant, no matter where you do it, even in your own language. And you're adding to that like a second language. And plus, I think if you're coming from a, a Western country and you're in Japan, there's also the fact that this is one of the most complex languages to read. I think even compared to, I, I have friends that are Chinese or speak Chinese that say, you know, even Chinese, even though it's all kanji, but it's not called kanji, but it's all that, that Chinese character system, each character just has one sound. Whereas in Japanese, there's, there's three written systems. Right. And they're all read differently depending on the context. So, you, you know, you're adding a language that's, hard, that's difficult to read in the spectrum of human languages, and it's your second language, and you're dealing with, like, bureaucratic legalese. Right. So that that's a giant headache. And then you're right. Yeah, every time I've gone back home and I have to go to like the DMV or I've had to go to like the embassy for something and I fill out some forms in English, I'm like, man, this is like nerf bureaucracy. Right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and two, I mean, the thing that you're not even mentioning that Japanese adds just an extra layer of difficulty yeah. to with is that they have a separate word uh, yeah. for every single one of those forms and every single one of those actions. Right for doing those forms right, right. that we don't have. Uh, yeah, and how formal you're being. Right. It, it legalese, you know, English legalese is not even that complicated compared to, like, Japanese, like, sonkeigo legalese. Right, but not even keigo. Like, they, you know, like, your students will be ask you, you're like, well, how do you say inchakushomeisho in English? And just, you know, that's the, the letter from the station. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, how would you say, like, shindansho? Well, that's just your letter from the doctor. <laughs> Doctor's note. Yeah, doctor's <laughs> yeah, note. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah you like, and like, you can say letter from the doctor or doctor's note and everyone's going to understand. Right. But if you like... Yeah, because we tend to do that when we speak Japanese, right? Before you know the correct word, you go like, uh, isha-san kara no tegami. Right, 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 right. And they have no idea what... They're like, well, good for you. What do you tell you? The, the, the doctor wrote you a letter? <laughs> really? Are you guys like friends or... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah. I, I, I was thinking about it with diseases because obviously coronavirus has been in the news and stuff lately. Right. Um, and also, uh, Yuki gets an upset stomach a lot. Uh -huh. And when I first encountered the, um, the you know, a lot of vi or diseases here, like something N at the end. Right. Which the N is the equivalent of like itis. In, yeah. In English, it basically means inflammation, and which I think is the exact same thing that itis means in Greek or Latin or whatever it is. But uh, ichoen right. is basically what we would call a stomach flu. Right. But 
I, for the longest time, didn't make that connection because when I looked up Ichoen and I saw the kanji, I was like, oh, it's like the stomach and the intestine are inflamed. Right. And when you look what that up, what we look up what that is in English, it's gastroenteritis because gastro stomach, right? Enter is the. But it is intestine. not gastroenteritis. Well, <laughs> to doctors, it is. I guess. Well, that, that's the other thing, too. You're right. Right. Sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. like the, uh, the other thing about that is when you end up trying to look for the word that is the, the I guess this is probably what you're saying, you end up getting the, the medical term that exactly. nobody knows. Exactly. Well, I mean, literally, like, Ichoen and gastroenteritis are exactly correct, but it's like, in terms of understanding, right. when I read gastroenteritis, it sounded a lot more serious than the stomach flu. Once I made the connection, I was like, oh, this is, this is just the technical name for the stomach flu. And then... Is it? I thought it was a different thing. I thought so too, but apparently oh. not. Yeah. Oh. Huh. If, if you go to like... My, my trick is I go to Wikipedia in one language, and then I change the language to another, and it goes from like the Japanese Wikipedia to the English Smart. Wikipedia. It's better than a dictionary for stuff like that. I always end up doing... I end up doing it reverse. So like I'll look it up, find it, and then like... Google that word, like Google the English word in English to find out what it is. Yeah, a lot of um, online but, yeah language searches are, are machine translated too. So right. it's, at least with the Wikipedia page, you know that like this is the page for speakers of that language, and these two pages have been deemed by the Wikipedia community to be like equivalent to each other. Smart. And you can't even see if they have some of the same photos or the same like con section content breakdown. Or right. Whatever. But anyway, the point I was trying to make is that um, it just. Um, like you were saying about Shindan Show and and uh, and Doctor's Note, is that um, you sometimes the word is not the word, right? Like, right, right. Yeah, exactly. So it was a long, it was around. As, as soon as I got to the point, I was like, wait, that's all. That's all I'm trying to say. It didn't take that much. Well, <laughs> and also like, something I've discovered in Japan is that they have specific verbs for things that we in English just don't have specific verbs for. And it doesn't, it doesn't affect me as much because in this particular instance, I think they can usually know what you mean. But oftentimes, students, my students, for example, if they're writing something, they're like, "But what's the word for that?" It, it's put. No, no, no. I'm, but I'm talking about when you, when you put this thing on this thing. Like, what's that verb? Still put. <laughs> it's, it's just put. Well, yeah, I mean, it's going to be put no matter what you're putting where. <laughs> I think that goes both ways, though. Yeah. Because where the languages delineate, like what's specific, you know what I always find funny if you really want to um, frustrate a student mm -hmm. with something that they really don't need to know at all is just go like, yeah, in, in English, every animal baby has its own name. It's not a it's not a dog baby or a cat baby because in Japanese right it's koinu koneko right. kohitsuji like everything's just ko plus the animal name except for wild boars. Oh, what are they What are they called? Uribo. Oh, I did not know that they're okay, Uribo. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. But I, yeah, in English, we have, you know, a different one for every animal, plus like the group of animals, a herd versus a flock versus a... Right. And it's all this complexity that when you look at from a Japanese perspective and they're like, why isn't it just horse group? Yeah. And fish group. Like, right. why is it a school? And then you really think about it, you're like, why isn't, I don't know. A murder of crows. A murder why? of yeah. crows, yeah. Sounds cool, though. Yeah, it does sound cool. <laughs> and then, meanwhile, like, when I was learning Japanese, I, I always remember, um, there, there's, like, several instances where I have the same memory of having the same reaction. One was I asked my Japanese friend in, in junior high school, who's actually the first person that, like, brought me to Japan to stay with his family when I was a kid. I remember asking him once, uh, how do you say yes and no in Japanese? And he said, oh, that depends on the situation. And I was like, what? what? How can... 
how can yes and no depend? Like, how do you get any more simple than those concepts? And he's like, well, it depends if you're saying like yes, I agree, or you're answering a question yes or no, right? Or you're like, and I, I just it, like as soon as I heard it, I was like, I don't want to learn Japanese. I don't. I I'm imme- immediately not interested anymore because it's like that's upsetting to take a concept that feels like it ought to be okay. I can at least learn these two words real quick, right? Or same thing with like when I asked, how do you say I and you? Yeah. Right. And you have that well, first. Well, it depends, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Who are what? you? Who are you talking to? I'm not even I anymore? <laughs> right. Like, talk about being lost in another leather language, right? Right, right. And for, mm. for anyone who doesn't know Japanese who might be listening or doesn't know any, much about Japanese, um, that we're not talking about, like, subject-object, like I, me. Right. Or him, uh, his, here, so what am I saying? Uh, he, him. We're not saying that difference. There's, like, actually, depending on, like, the social hierarchy of the situation you're in, and the tone you want to have, and your personality, the, right? The, it's a different word, yeah. And also, just when you can use you, like you is—I mean, I is very difficult. And you makes I look simple. Yeah. Yes. Right. When is it? When is it acceptable to, like, for example, if you're in a business situation and you're talking to a a, a customer, you can't even really say anata, which is like right the most polite word. You have to say okiaksama. Right. You have to refer to them as customer. Right, you have to refer to them as the customer or, I mean, at least, I mean, if it's a teacher, at least you can call them sensei. But right. like, oftentimes, if it's just someone you've met, then you need to, instead of you, you put their name in there. Right. So right. I would be, so what did Ian do yesterday? Yeah. Well, like looking at your face and talking to you directly. Right. Right. It's like you're always talking about someone in the third person. Right, exactly. Which sucks if you're really bad at remembering people's names that you just met. Well, you know what's actually really funny about that is I'm sure you've you've seen or, or been in this situation. Like what I found really interesting is um the way people deal with not knowing someone's name. Like in English you might you might be in the middle of a conversation and you need to use someone's name and you realize like you didn't get it. Right. But it's early enough in meeting them that you can say that. Right. You can acknowledge it. So in English I think what I think we usually do is go like I'm sorry, I, I didn't catch your name or, or I'm sorry, I, what was your name again? Or something like that. Right. In, in Japanese, it's almost like because the name is used as like the subject of the sentence and because of word order, it's usually the first word you need to say. Right. So um, sometimes you just see people go like, they just I can't even do it on, on audio, but they just sort of freeze and go. And the other person will register what they mean and be like, <laughs> oh, it's Takeshi. Like, yeah. 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 And it, it, that's true. I, and I guess those nonverbal cues are, those are up there. With, we were talking about earlier about uh, how comedy is one of the things at the end of what you can learn. I think nonverbal cues are in there as well. Like yeah. it's, there's certain nonverbal cues that it just takes you a long time to learn. Yeah. And it works both ways too. Uh, often, well, for example, when you're introducing yourself in English, like you, when you first meet somebody, you tend to not say, what's your name? You tend to say, you know, like, oh, uh, I'm Kevin, and then you stick out your hand. Right, right. And then Japanese people will say, oh, nice to meet you, and shake your hand. <laughs> yeah, right. And right. then you have trapped them in your hand, and you're not letting them go until they say their name. Right, right. Like, subconsciously, you're just like, uh-huh, you've got their hand, and they're like, why is he, why is he still holding my hand? Yeah, yeah, it's... It's a very, it's a fundamental breakdown at like the most basic level because I've, <laughs> right. I've had the handshake reaction. I've also had it where you stick your hand out and you get, they, they, they realize that you're prompting them for something and they just go, yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm right. Ian. And, they, and you stick Fair your enough. hand and they like, look it, at your hand, look at you and go, yes, <laughs> nice to meet you. <laughs> 
It's, which is funny because I picture it from their perspective. They're seeing you introduce yourself and then stick out your hand and be like, no, you acknowledge that I've said something. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it does. But like they don't take the next step of and I should probably introduce myself, too. Right. Right. Yeah. But it's yeah, it's true. Like it, they don't have that verbal or the nonverbal cue. Yeah, this is a good chance for a segue because it makes me think of how a lot of those nonverbal cues. I think we oftentimes when you learn something, once you know it, you forget the process of learning. You forget right. the moments that you learn. Some things you remember, but especially in childhood. Right. I think we're not most adults in the world are not aware of how much of our um, our language use, our social cues just comes from being like two years old and having your mom like poke you in the back and be like, now introduce yourself or like, now you say something or not you. Yeah. Say thank you. Like, uh, right. Or or you, or you say like, um, like I am trying to think of a sentence that I I thought of something recently where I saw a situation and it made me think of that, but like a, a, like a two year old being like, like I can have milk now. And you're like, I can have Have milk. milk now. And you just, that's just done to you as a child. And you're so not aware of it that you're just you're basically like a dog being trained, right? You get you get what you want every time you say it correctly, right? And you get like applauded if you use the right um, uh, etiquette, and so that sticks. And then when you're adult, you just feel like you just always knew it, right? Well, I I that here's another thing where you're right. I actually have a special window into this because I I have a tiny human yes. in my home right now who is growing up in a bilingual environment. Great, yeah, and this is a, a great subject to get into. Uh, so my, uh, youngest son, David is, uh, growing up with, uh, his mom whose native language is Japanese and, and me, uh, whose native language is English, mainly main language is English. Uh, and now I will tell you, my wife's English is head and shoulders above my Japanese. Uh, but we have tried to maintain a bilingual home that he can learn in. And so her and I almost entirely uh, communicate in English. So he sees, he sees people speaking English to each other. And we have, you know, sort of curated that for him. Uh, Is that morning and night, every day? Every day, morning and night. That's right. Uh, And uh, because her and I both work, but she's a nurse, and so her, her schedule is not a Monday through Friday schedule. So oftentimes on the weekends, those are his daddy days, and those are all English days. Hmm. And he, it, I'm amazed that such a tiny little person who can't yet figure out how to use a toilet has already can watch a television screen and tell you if he can't read it, but he can tell you if it's Japanese or English. That's interesting. He can look at it and go, Daddy, Japanese, Japanese. Like if the subtitles, like I will switch the subtitles to English because apparently I have ADD now and I need to be able to read. And so when my wife Kanako is at home, I will actually switch the subtitles to English. And, and he's figured that out. And so like if we have something on television and there's still Japanese subtitles, he'll, say, he'll run over and point to the screen and say, Daddy, Japanese, Japanese. Oh, and then he'll say English, English, and I'll switch it to English. He can't read it, but he knows which one is which. Does he do that just on Daddy Days, or does he do it also if it's both you and, and Khan in the house? Or? He will. Well, he oh, he always points out. Like if there's anything written, he will point out whether it's Japanese or English. Oh, either way, he'll point out. Yeah, whether it's the back of his juice box or whatever. That's not super interesting to me, and I in because I what immediately came to mind listening to that is if if he's that aware of it, 
that he's always like you know verbalizing it right um that must he must be picking up on patterns that like oh when dad watches tv he uses english subtitles he and when does mom watches tv she uses japanese subtitles or, yeah. not only that like he has figured out I, I will tell you that if he were to meet an asian american it would throw him yeah because right now what he sees is when he sees Asian people, he speaks Japanese to them. And when he sees anybody who's not Asian, no matter, you know, or not Japanese, really, whatever, whatever they are, he speaks to them first in English. This is, I think, an extremely familiar aspect of living in Asia. Right. That is a lot less controversial here than it is, for example, in the United States. Oh, um, for sure. To just racially profile somebody and decide what language you're going to speak to them. And kind of nobody freaks out. Um, I mean, some people that are a little bit hypersensitive will either way. Like, I, I often, I, I've had the frustrating experience where I'm speaking Japanese to somebody, but because my face looks how my face is, they're trying to answer in English. Right. Despite the fact that it's clear it's not necessary. And, you know, there, there is a bit of frustration that builds up, but I, I just think if it were if it were the 21st century U.S., I might freak out. I'm not saying me personally, like, I don't want to do that. I don't think that's a good way to handle it. But, but uh, someone in my situation might freak out, and society might completely be on their side. If I was to stand there and, like, be like, oh, this is this is uh, racist, and why aren't you speaking to me in Japanese? Um, when, in, you know, if you take people's life experiences, like you look at how your son's growing up, uh-huh. it's totally understandable. Right. That's what he's seen. Right. And, you know, to be fair, he's two. <laughs> Excellent point. Excellent point. <laughs> I, you know, I, I feel like this, those, those particular subtleties of society are something he can oh, figure out later. Sure, sure, sure. But, uh, but it is, it's very fascinating to watch him uh, when I take him, he has a baby gym class. And when I take him to the baby gym class, he will pick up one of like, so they throw the little plastic balls all over the floor for the kids to go pick up. And they're all different colors because, you know, kids. And so he goes and he picks up the red one, for example, and he'll come over and he'll say, Daddy, Daddy, red one, red one. And he will turn around to his teacher and say, Akaino, Akaino, like on the spot. And yeah. he, and he even will say, uh, and like this, it, 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 so that happened. That's an actual thing that happened, and his teacher commented on it. And he said to her, "Daddy, ego kara." And then he turned around to me and said, "Daddy, English." And so he's literally like he's at two already. A he knows that that's the person he speaks Japanese to. Said, you know, "Daddy, English" in Japanese to her, and then turned around to me and said, "Daddy, English." As if I couldn't understand what he had said to her. I, no, I, I'm really glad you shared that story. And I, that's the kind of stuff I would love, love to hear more about. Because they, like, there was one specific... So Yuki and I had a conversation that gave me the idea for... I, I, I want to do a podcast about this because I've, I've not seen anybody really get into it. Um, and then we had one experience right after that where I was like, oh, I, I got to do this. Yeah, um, because we're we're thinking this year to try to have a, a, a kid. And it's, it's something that I want to be conscious of going in to have a child and not right. get too caught off guard i'm sure it will be caught off guard but um we went i think yeah you, it was i don't remember who was hosting it but you remember we went for that picnic on the on the river in nakanoshima yeah with there was a big group of people and, it, and it there were a bunch of kids yeah, yeah. And it started raining and there's the kids running around and um there was a uh, a, a pair of kids i'm i don't want to say people's names without before they've been on right. here and sort of signed the, the release i don't even i actually wouldn't be able to tell you their names to be honest with you but i do remember i know exactly who you're talking about because okay. there were these kids who were not 
toddlers like the other kids there. No. They were not like babies and toddlers. Right. They were. It was maybe like a five-year-old girl and like a seven-year-old boy. Right. Maybe a couple years younger than that, but in that range. And the um, the boy was kicking a soccer ball around, and we kind of went and kicked the ball around with him for a while because I I always I remember being a child because I was the oldest child and being like the only kid my age. Right. When the adults got together and kind of being stuck between two worlds. Whenever I see a kid in that position, yeah. Always... <laughs> this is the worst being the oldest by far kid at the kids' table. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I always try to go give them the 20 minutes of I'll kick soccer ball with them and like ask them, you know, what they're into and just so they don't feel completely left out of right. the adult world. But uh, you, so Yuki and I went and, and played with uh, these kids and we were, it was interesting because I saw the, the older brother processing us. Mm-hmm. He was going like, these. So this couple, obviously one person's, again, he probably just racially profiled us, which is right. totally normal for a kid. Um, that's what he's seen and what he's used to. It, but then he also was like, but they're code switching. Like he was seeing us code switch with ourselves and being like, wait, so which is the language they use? Right. And then he said to both of us separately, because I heard him say it to Yuki when I was out of earshot. Uh-huh. She was speaking to him in English because it was like Sunday and that's our English day between right. the two of us. Um, he said to Yuki, he's like, you know, you can speak Japanese to me. He said it in Japanese. He's like, And I was, I was like, that's interesting. Right. I, by the way. Oh, I actually remember that. Yeah. I remember him saying that because I, either that or I heard him say it to somebody else who was also speaking, but I think it might've been Yuki. Well, that's the thing is he said it also to me. So he must've said it to other people as well. It, they, this kid was really tuned into the fact that. That some people, even if they can speak two languages, by the way, if you're hearing that on mic, we're not farting. There's like a drill or construction happening <laughs> somewhere. Um, you know, it's funny because I was like, you know, you could turn off your phone. You like, you don't have to let it keep rumbling over there. Yeah, no, there's a, there's construction happening. I think in the building. <laughs> but um, but so this kid was really tuned in to the fact that like people. Like, even if they can speak two languages, some people are more comfortable in one. And he was trying to make people feel comfortable. Right. And, like, I can speak whichever language you want, which I thought was very interesting. And the, why I think your story uh, about your... Sorry, are you using his name? Yeah, I said his, David. His okay, name. okay. I didn't, I didn't want to yeah. out him. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, interesting about David is... Uh, the, <laughs> don't the tell people he's... Don't tell people you're my dad. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're gonna you use a, my name. Just don't say you're my dad. You're gonna get a lawsuit. It's gonna be from embarrassing him. later. <laughs> but then the interesting story about him and his teacher, or the interesting thing about that story is, it's the same thing, and it, it it's a great example. Both of those stories are great examples of. There's a statistic right. that um, children who grow up actively bilingual actually learn empathy sooner. Right. Um, and and they learn it better than <clears throat> other kids. Not that. Monolingual people are not empathetic. It's just the the way they learn the lesson is that I I can speak two languages and some people can't. That's right. a really different um, lesson than than a monolingual kid can learn. Right. And also, think about this as somebody who didn't grow up that way, like me and you and most people. When you were little, adults seemed infallible. Mm-hmm. To at that early an age figure out that they're not. You can do something that you can do something can't. that they can't. Yeah. And that there is something they can't do, even though the situation requires it in some cases. And you can. That is such uh that's I mean a, a really a kind of a gift of a thing to learn 
totally for a, small, for a small child. Totally. I mean, like this is a dark, a bit of a dark comparison, but um, what it makes me think of is how if you look at kids who come from sort of broken homes where like a parent's dealing with like drug addiction or mental illness, you see kids grow up faster because they realize like, oh, like, oh, mom or dad can't take care of himself or herself. Uh, I've got to do some things right. that mom or dad can't do. But in, in a in a less um, destructive or, or, or with, without involving illness, you have the same thing with language where the, where the kid is able to go, oh, like dad can't navigate this situation because he doesn't speak Japanese or mom doesn't have the English for this situation, but I do. Right. Right. That's that's a powerful thing, as you say, that, that um, casts adults in a totally different light. And I think probably not only building empathy, but it probably is good for self-confidence, I would think. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. Could you imagine? I mean, imagine having that when you were six years old or seven years old. Yeah. Could you imagine what it would have been like yeah. if like, you were with a group of people and you were the one that was like, hang on, grown-ups. I think I got this for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dad, Dad, just go have a seat. I'll, I'll work this out for you. Yeah, yeah you know what? You, I'll order the food for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. Mm. So, <clears throat> so how old is David? He's two. Okay. Two oh, and a half. Said two. And, and, uh, or more than two and a half. Is he now, going but... to any kind of like daycare or anything like that yet? He is, but his daycare it was not chosen because this is going to be something that is a great international daycare. His daycare was chosen because it is connected to his mother's work. Okay. And I'm... so like he's not getting any English in it at all. Well, so this connects to another thing that I want to talk about is that um, we, I think as as people who are... I don't know how you define your class, but you define yourself, but like middle class or we're aspiring to sort of curate our lives and curate our children's lives. And right. which is a very, which is a privilege to be able to do <clears throat> right. Um, if there's people who are in economic situations where they, they can't even afford to think about that stuff. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of us who think like, Oh, I would like my child to do ballet and I would like my child to speak English this well and speak Japanese this well. And those of us who are able to do that, I think we often f- feel guilt Right. I'm, I'm feeling it preemptively. I don't even have a child yet, but I'm like, man, I'm not going to be able to afford international school and all. And, right. You know? And I, there's a lot of experiences that I would like them to have. I would like them to like split their year between the U.S. and Japan, but like, you know, that takes money. Right. It <laughs> right. does. Right. A lot. Right. <laughs> and then you know, I was also thinking about um, for me, even though, and I, you know, I'll get into this maybe now or maybe in another uh, podcast. But for me, uh, my relationship with like Spanish and having a parent from Mexico was a, a sort of belated um, realization as far as like what, how I felt about myself and my identity. Um, I don't want to get too sidetracked to talking about me, but just the gist of it is as a child growing up in Southern California and passing for white, like if I don't tell people I'm, I'm half Mexican, like n- almost nobody suspects it. Um, that's I, even the language I use. Suspect. suspect. Well, but I, that, and that's what I'm getting at is there was a kind of um, privilege to being like when I want to be, I can just be like I'm one of the white kids. Yeah, I don't right. I don't know any Spanish, and um, I it's unfortunate because I think uh, English in in Japan is a high status second language. It's cool to speak English, right? Even though a lot of people don't bother because it's difficult and, and they don't they you know until their job tells them you have to learn English. A lot of people just don't put much effort into studying, but the image of it is cool. Right. Whereas like, I think Spanish for Americans is a cool language to learn. It's not so cool to grow up speaking. It's not as cool depending on who you're around. Right. I suppose that's true. Yeah, definitely. And I think also depending on where you are, I think I, 
I remember at an early age seeing one of my classmates speaking Spanish. It was actually the first time I had a window into what we were talking about earlier mm. with, you know, like the, the bilingual kids and, and like that sort of superpower they had. And it was, and I, one of my classmates, I was in second grade and one of my classmates spoke Spanish and I was like, whoa. <laughs> so for me, I did not have that at feeling at all. I just yeah. thought that was like a special ninja superpower. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that you're probably not the only person by by a long stretch who feel felt that way about as as a kid and who feels that way about it now. But I mean, it goes in and out of being a hot button political um, issue, and certainly right now it's kind of at its peak or one of you know right. one of the peaks. But um, but it it does. I was cognizant as a child of being like sometimes it's better to just pretend I I have nothing to do with Mexico. The only relationship <laughs> I have to do with Mexico. But it, is, yeah. 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 Um, and I don't mean like in a, in a horrible, you know, it wasn't, there wasn't like violence enacted upon me for it, you know, thankfully, obviously that probably some people have experienced that, but, right. um, but anyway, so ooh, I, I kind of took a, a long detour there. I'm trying to remember wh- where I was going, but, um, yeah, as far as how you define, uh, what the language means to you and in your life, um, sorry, I'll, maybe I'll come back to my train of thought, but I was, I was trying to set up the idea that there's. There, there can be high-status languages right. and low-status languages. Maybe in Japan, I would imagine a lot of Zainichi Koreans have a similar relationship with being able to speak Korean or having a Korean parent at home. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> because of where I work, I have learned quite a bit of the, uh, uh, the Korean experience um, in Japan. And, uh, I mean, I know a lot about... Uh, well, not, I wouldn't say I know a lot about, but I've I've learned, and I've as as a member of the school that I uh, that I work with, uh, they kind of I don't want to use the word indoctrinate, but it's the best word in the situation. They sort of indoctrinate their new employees into the culture, and we have to take classes on what happened to the Korean population and why the Korean population is as big as it is now. Um, compared to, uh, you know, pre-Meiji. And, uh, and it's, I mean, it's shocking. It is shocking how much their language was used against them. Uh, so there was a very dark period, for the listeners that don't know, there was a very, very dark period in Japan where, uh, you know, fascism swept through Japan and the brunt of that fascism was the Korean population and the Chinese population as well. Uh, now, like, what I've learned about mostly is the Korean population. And what they would do, there were already Korean people living in Japan. It, the and, countries are right next door for, you know, anybody whose geography is not. I mean, it's, it's, it's the closest country to Japan. Right. So there were already Korean people living in Japan when this took effect. And, uh, you know, when the Meiji period happened and, you know, uh, modern modernity ended up leading to fascism, and they started. They started with making lists. You know, they started with keeping track, and then it got worse from there. And they would go around, and Korean people living in Japan kind of got wise to it and stopped admitting that they were Korean, but they spoke with Korean accents. And one of the things that the uh, the sort of 
Japanese equivalent of the Gestapo would do when they would come around and try to find out if you were Korean is they would hold out a 50 yen coin or a 5 yen coin and they would ask you to say it. What is this? So in the Korean language, the CH sound and the J sound are often interchangeable. Probably also the the G and the J, or G and the the K sound. That's right, that's right. And so oftentimes, Korean people speaking Japanese, instead of saying, so the word for 10 in Japanese is ju, ju. And they, that very easy, so... uh, they put that after each, you know, each number in yeah. order to... So it's 20 like, is Niju. Right. 30, 20 is Niju. You know, 30 is Sanju. Yeah. And then 50 is, is Goju. And, and especially with that, that G at the beginning. So oftentimes in Korean, so Goju, but in Korean oftentimes the G sound at the beginning is going to be a harder sound, right? You think like... G, the G sound and the K sound, are ba- your mouth is doing the same thing. Go versus coal. Right. Your mouth is doing the same thing. It's whether you've added a voice to it or not. I always think of it as like, so in Japanese, they have this little mark that sort of looks like one quotation mark. Yeah. And they attach that to the character to tell you whether or not it's going to have a voice or not. Right. So for Korean people, they, they have a really difficult time with that. If it's at the beginning yeah. of a, if it's at the beginning of the word, right. they will often put a stress on it by not putting a voice on it. Right. And likewise, they will end up putting a voice on something that doesn't necessarily have it. Right. And so if it's in the middle of a word, so they would put this coin out and they would say, what is this? And it's, it's goju, goju en. That's the Japanese pronunciation. That's the, the, the but correct. But if somebody Japanese had said like kochu en or go, gochu, gochu en, right. then gochu. they were like, aha. Right. And that was, and they ended up, investigating but that was there so they would come and knock on the doors and come in and they would say sit down and talk with us and then they would just like in their conversation they would put that coin on the table and they would ask the person to say it for them and if they didn't pass the test then they ended up you know in camps it's a super i didn't know that particular story thanks for sharing that that's something that's very good perspective to have given you know your experiences where you work and stuff and i think that that history is important to know i mean you, you use the word indoctrinate and i and i understand your hesitance to use it but I think that there is a certain, I, there, there's some concepts I wish we were less afraid of, right? That indoctrination isn't necessarily brainwashing. Right. That it's sometimes to understand where someone is coming from. You need to be explained. You need to have a bunch of stuff explained to you. Right. That you didn't know. And doesn't mean like you're now going to like march and lockstep with, with whatever, and you know, anyone from that group tells you. Right. It just means I, you didn't know some stuff and you need some important context. I didn't know that story, but that practice, it, it's its one of those stories I'm surprised to hear because I didn't know it, and it seems like I should have heard it by now. But um, I'm, at the same time, I'm not surprised because um, that practice, that test, is a super ancient test, and it, it's been involved in, I, I don't want to exaggerate, I was going to say almost every, but it's been involved in many, many genocides and ethnic cleansings and, um, and atrocities throughout history. Are, are, have you... Heard that in other contexts? Sure, of course. Well, I mean, it's it also been used for good. I mean, the word shibboleth. Right, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, it's called a shibboleth. Right. It's, it's, it comes from right. a uh, a test to see if somebody was a... 
I think it's biblical, right? The, right. The Hebrews and the Assyrians, or I may be getting the, the specific groups wrong, but one group said Shibboleth and the other group said Sibboleth. That's right. And then, that, yeah, they would has, ask them, and what what was it actually? I think it's a... I don't remember. It's, it might, a unit of measurement or a, possibly even money also. Right. It was some item that they would ask them to pronounce. And, you know, if you said, if you said this word, you lived. Right. And if you said this word, you died. Also, Haiti and the Dominican Republic had it with, I believe in that case, it was because that... That island, half of it was colonized by Spain and half of it was colonized by uh, France. Right. And because they're in such close proximity to the U.S., um, uh, it is Haiti and the Dominican Republic. They're on the same island, right? right. I hope I'm not That's getting right. that wrong. Um, but they, they also... We can edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> so they also speak English. Of course English. you knew that. And I think, the, um, I think the word was the English word parsley. Because no. it was a word, it was an English word that everybody knew that was not native to French or Spanish, and they would ask him to say parsley, and the Spanish people would roll their R, no. and the, the French people would do the sort of ch, the right. pars, pars, I can't do it right, obviously right, but but depending, I, I would you know I would not pass the test, um, but <laughs> depending on uh, on which word they said, you were obviously Haitian or Dominican, which uh, it's such an I think what's so insidious about the shibboleth test is that you. It, it's specifically, it almost like in, by its very nature, it acknowledges that you're not really that different. Right. Like, you don't look different. Your ideology is not necessarily different. There's no, there's no, um, there's nothing about you that's so inherently different that you're like, I'm not saying that it's justified to have a genocide if you do look different, but I'm just saying that you have to actually catch someone on what's essentially a technicality. Right. But I mean... Well, what I was saying is that it hasn't always been used for evil. It has also been used, like, for example, by secret Christians. Like when Christians were being persecuted, okay. they would often use that. They would often use a shibboleth to find each other. Oh, okay. Interesting. So, so in fact, the, like the, the secret Christians in, in Kyushu, in Nagasaki, they had, uh, Indo Shusaku has written a lot about them. They've, they had a shibboleth as well to like, find each other. I've never, that's interesting. So you're talking about basically symbols that the general population doesn't understand. Right. Uh, okay. I've In never... fact, the Jesus fish, that was the whole thing, right? Like that Jesus fish, what it comes from is, you know, you draw one side and if the person knows it, they draw the other side. Right. I was familiar with that. So that's interesting because I've never put those two concepts together. I didn't realize that was also called a shibboleth. I've, I've, I've... I, maybe it's not. I don't know. But I mean, it, but it's the same kind of thing. It's oh, definitely. I mean, it's if it's not, it could be. <laughs> crypto identity. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's very interesting. So on the well, well, I think that I would maybe separate the two because, and I don't, now I'm just sort of, uh, what am I saying, conjecturing. I don't know if they are the same concept or not, but it seems like to me the shibboleth in the terms of what we're talking about with like the Japanese um, secret police and, and Koreans or right. the, or the uh, Haiti-Dominican Republic situation is... is it's something that the general population knows hmm. that the speaker can't really fully control. Right. Because obviously, if you were like... Um, it's a test against you. Right. Versus a test to let you in. Right. And some people hmm. can code switch even their accent and dialect, right? Like, oh, for sure. And I think that when, like in our case, living abroad, you probably adjust the way you speak when you're in your hometown versus when you're speaking to like British people in Japan. Oh, I, so I actually... So I grew up, I didn't grow up in, in the Seattle area. I grew up in Indiana, in Indianapolis. Okay. And I was in the city and I went to, uh, you know, like inner city schools in Indianapolis. And, uh, and that's from junior high. That's where I was. And as a result, like the dialect that I grew up speaking was, 
you know, what I, I, I words and word choices I would make often sounded what would traditionally be African American, and I find my in a, but I am not. I am you know I am as pasty white as a uh, NPR tote bag, and I and but that's how I spoke growing up, right. and now like if I because when you are with other people that speak the dialect that you grew up speaking, you code into that dialect, and. It's incredibly insensitive for me to code into that dialect. Right. You know what I mean? I have to like actively keep myself from doing that because white people that sound like that just sound like assholes. <laughs> and I have to like actively stop myself from doing that. Yeah, it's funny because I, I have the now, <clears throat> not something I had as a child, but now I have the reverse problem where um, living in, in Japan for a long time and Having to adjust my English um, to a certain extent to uh, to speak to non-native English speakers like Japanese uh, people learning English like in, in the context of class. Though outside of class, I don't really speak a lot of English to Japanese people. But even so, there's um, lots of English speakers from other parts of the U.S., other parts of the world. I've met more... Uh, more of the non-American English speakers that I've met in my life have been from living in Japan, right? Having right. British friends, yeah, having sure. Australian friends, having New Zealand uh, Kiwi friends, and Canadians and all that stuff, South Africans even, people that I never encountered in California. And I think I always describe it as my English has been rounded out, like some of the hard edges have been sanded off. And it's not that I sound, that I affect a British accent or, or an Australian, I certainly don't, but there's some things that I might naturally say in California Right. That I've adjusted just to be just to skip any potential someone going what because it's happened occasionally I'll say something and a British friend will not understand what I was saying I can't think of any off the, off the top of my head but so I've sort of sanded those down and now I speak a very generic understandable to all speakers of English variant of the of the American dialect it's, yeah same here it's a it's a sort of hybrid artificial American dialect. But so when I go back to California, even sometimes when I'm texting with my mom, sometimes I'll look back at my texts or they've even said it to me of like, you know, you talk a little different now. And I think it's, um, for example, it, this is a super silly, simple example, but saying like a bit, mm -hmm. a bit, or I describe something as curious <laughs> in my family. And so that's curious. And, and I'd probably never in Southern California growing up there before I had lived abroad would, would have said curious or a bit. That's a bit curious. Right. <laughs> Not a sentence I would have said. And I I try to actively like suppress it or fight it when I go back because it's the reverse thing where I feel like I just sound like this giant pompous. Right. Like, uh, it's like I'm full of affectations and I think I'm brilliant, but it's really not what's going on. It's this other process that's happened gradually that I wasn't fully conscious of. Oh, for that. sure. And also, too, I think in, I mean, both of our cases teaching English over here, like we're using these textbooks that are designed for people from any English-speaking country to use, yeah. and we're talking to people who are learning it as a second language, and we just, over time, without thinking, curate the language we use for them. Yeah. Uh, it's... I may have even started saying curious, and that I think about it, because I almost may, maybe back-translated it from Fushigi in Japanese, right? Right. Because there's not a perfect word for Fushigi. Yeah, it's strange or mysterious or so. But curious, I I think maybe at one point I just that just light bulb went off in my head. I think at some point I realized it fit in the most contexts that were the same as Fushigi. Maybe I just started saying curious. All right, so 
Are we ready for the next topic? Do you want to? Oh, yeah. By okay. Means, yeah. So then I feel like maybe we could talk about uh, the blending of the languages for somebody. You know, this kind of fits. I mean, this kind of fits before what we talked about. Like parsley, for example, was a, a word that neither of them used. Um, Apologies, so, too, if, if anyone listening realizes I've gotten that story like completely wrong. wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Same with mine. Uh, I. Uh, so. Um, when I first came here, I was much more immersed in Japanese than I am now. Okay. And I probably, actually, I, I think I literally spoke better Japanese 15 years ago than I speak now. Um, I mean, maybe that's not true, but I, I, I feel like it's true. I feel like I, I was much quicker to speak Japanese. Interesting. And a lot of Japanese seeped into my English. Okay. I was on the JET program. For those of you who don't know, the JET program is a government program here in Japan where they bring fresh out of college, mostly, uh, native English speakers, mostly, uh, to Japan, and they send them out to be the native teachers in public schools. And a lot of people on the JET program are not in cities. They're mostly out in the middle of nowhere. And so if you ever see, if you're ever watching on BBC or whatever, a, a you know, uh, a news clip about some big festival that's happening, you know, somewhere in Japan where, you know, they've got some burning thing that they're all hauling through the streets or whatever, and you're watching and everybody's, you know, they're all clad in the traditional Japanese dress. They're wearing the yukata, like the summer kimono. And you're watching, and amongst all the Japanese faces, you see this one random foreigner, this blonde, blue-eyed dude sticking out like a sore thumb. That guy's probably on the jet program. And he is like his his town, like he's his town's pet gaijin. Yeah, and they all know him. And they all know him yeah. wherever he goes. And anyway, I was on that program. And so, you know, but we would come together, you know, so Nagasaki was the largest town and Nagasaki is sort of like Montgomery Alabama in that it seems like it would be bigger than it is because it's famous but it's not it's not that big it's a, it's a small it's a small town <clears throat> like everybody knows it so you think it would be really big but it's just really not that's a really funny observation yeah it's true of a lot of places yeah, yeah. so you know it's a small town and like there were like two places where foreigners would gather and one of them was the bar in the Holiday Inn Interesting. And that was, you know, and so like the, there were a lot of Germans there because Mitsubishi has a, a big footprint there. And so a lot of German engineers coming in to, you know, work at Mitsubishi for a particular project or to oversee a project that Mitsubishi was doing. Uh -huh. it's Mitsubishi Heavy Industries mm -hmm. is the one that's there. And so there would be all these, you know, uh, European engineers and English teachers were the people congregating in this little bar. And, uh, it was like the most boring Casablanca ever. You know, it was a... <clears throat> but we, would, we found that over time, our English that we were speaking to each other was peppered more and more liberally with Japanese words. So this is including like the German engineers in it? Or... Even the German engineers as well. And they were like, they were of course, you know, more than conversant in English, but yeah. they would, over time, they, they also were using them. But it was most prominent among the English teachers that were there. I could, so I, I would, so this, oh, this is an interesting thing, and I'm going to confess here to having a, almost, ideological is a strong word, but I'll call it an ideological stake in this phenomenon uh -huh. um, of 
blending or accidental code switching or or I don't know if there's probably a technical term for it, but where you take words that are not they're not originally loan words in a language that probably no native speaker would understand. You start using them interchangeably with the, with the native with um, in this case you use Japanese words in English right that no one outside of that community would understand right. Um, there's probably a technical name for it, but so that's something that. Of course, I've done it. I think when you first arrived today, before we started recording, I was, I, I couldn't find the English word for komakai. Oh, right. I, descri- I described your, your coffee taste as komakai. That's something, though, that, like I said, I'm confessing to doing it. But, but what I want to be clear that I'm a bit biased here is I have like an um, ideological axe to grind with, <laughs> I feel that, and I'm not saying for other people, mostly for myself, I feel that it's a bad habit. And I, and I like to keep the languages as much as possible when I'm speaking English, I'm speaking English. And when I'm speaking Japanese, I'm speaking Japanese for no other reason than that as a discipline, I think it makes you more eloquent in the language. Cause what, in my case, well, I'm, I'm going to sound like, uh, like, um, the pompous but, guy you were describing earlier bilingual. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> maybe that. Well, okay. You got me. Um, I feel that that habit is the same habit as I can't think of exactly the word I want to say, so I'm just gonna say good. You know what I mean? Where right. it, it sort of reduces your active vocabulary, and uh, I, so, you know, huge. A lot of yeah, there you go. <laughs> huge. It's huge. Um, a lot of my uh, students, it's probably like an unpleasant memory for them, but I think sometimes when you're teaching kids, you have to, you know, this discipline, not in the in a sense, the sense of punishment, but in the sense of setting rules and expectations and enforcing them. Is, is sometimes not a pleasant experience, but I think it's aspects of it are necessary. I was always in my in my class, I would always sort of nudge my kids if they used an English word in Japanese that I knew wasn't a commonly used English loan word in Japanese or uh-huh. vice versa. I'd be like, which language do you speak now? There's a Japanese word for that. Or like, there's an English word for that. And I would never discourage the use of one language or the other, but I was always kind of like, when you're speaking English... Use English words right. when you when you're speaking Japanese. Speak Japanese words because it's all well and good in that classroom, and it's all well and good in the Holiday Inn in Nagasaki to do that. But um, when it creeps in as like an innate habit in your English speech, and you find yourself in other situations, it can it can work against you. So right. this is something that this is something that I, I feel really like people ought not. To, I I don't advise it. <laughs> I agree, and yeah. I. There's it's levels. really hard to stop. Yeah. There are levels, but yeah. I, it, it got pretty bad at one point. And I had not realized how bad it was until I went home and spoke to actual English speakers as opposed to what I had become yeah. and realized that like so much of my language was peppered with words that they didn't know. Uh, you know? Yeah. But I mean, I think, I mean, one thing that is... I just came from the cuckoo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where's the icky? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think one thing that hasn't gone away is with money, with numbers, because Japanese money is on a completely different denominational scale. Totally. And so... I, I It's for some reason Ichimanen. Yeah. I never, I almost never say it in English. Every time I do it, I'm like, ugh. But I, I'll say 6,000 yen. Right. Or I'll say, uh, say 300,000 yen. But when I'm in the 10,000 range, I always say Ichiman, Niman. Right, right, right. Well, the thing is, man is so much easier to say than 10,000. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? And because 
normal things that we buy regularly are in the tens of thousands. Yeah, it's the it's the hundred dollar bill essentially. Yeah, right, exactly. And so, where you would say three hundred bucks here, it's I mean. Either I will say it in dollars, no. or I'll use Japanese. No. But I don't use Japanese. I mean, it's completely blended. So I'm not going to say it's Sanman. I'll say it's Threeman. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. I, I usually say Sanman. <laughs> but for a while, when I was trying to police myself on that and trying to break the habit, I would say like 30K, uh-huh. which sounded cool. Sure. I just Except talk- that if you say 30K, I assume you're talking about dollars. See, and I'm th- like, man, that is an expensive-ass piece of equipment. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really interesting um, aspect of it, too, that it, there's, it's, it's bigger than just language, right? Because we all... Uh, how long have you been in Japan? Uh, well, almost 20 years. Well, 20 years, except for one. Okay, yeah. And I've been here 12, and I don't think I'm ever going to stop mentally going back and forth between the two monetary systems. Right. With like weight and and temperature and stuff, I'm actually more in metric now than than in imperial. Same here. Though not with speed because I I still the hours I put into driving still at this point ninety eight percent of them were in America, so I'm right. still in miles per hour mentally. But when it comes to temperature, that's true. I don't even think about it. But you're right. I wouldn't even like. What is the legal speed in in Japan? You're right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, but when it comes to temperature, I'm I'm way more in Celsius than I am in in Fahrenheit now. When Let's it comes be honest, to my weight, it makes more sense. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I don't even know what my weight is in pounds without without like converting it. Oh, yeah, that's I've true. Been weighing myself right. in kilograms for for years now. So right, but for some reason with the money, even though I I guess I maybe because I do have a U.S. bank account and I, maybe, maybe that is why. But I mean, still. The past 12 years of my life, I mean, almost all of my um, transactions have been with yen. Right. But I'm always kind of a 100 yen is a dollar, give or take. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you wouldn't say, like, it's so easy to take 300 yen out and just say three bucks. All right. Yeah. You know, how much is it? Yeah, it's just three bucks. Yeah. You, you can but almost, it's not it's not dollars at all. It's yen, and it's three hundred of them. You could you could even like false merge. What's the term when there's false friends or or fake loan words? You could almost merge buck and byaku. It's three byaku. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> three byaku in. Actually, my favorite is the yeni. The yeni. I've not heard that one. Before. Uh, like, hey, hey, do you have a yeni? Uh, I, do you have three yeni I could borrow? Uh, that's a good one. Because they don't have, like, I I never thought it was weird until I I left my country. But the fact that our coins have names is kind of a weird thing. Yeah. Also, do you find that, like, um, what is it? The quarter also now seems really strange to me because I've lived so long without it. Right. I'm like, why is there, I mean, I get get that if you think of it as a quarter of a dollar, it makes sense to have. Sure. When you start thinking of it as 25 cents. It's like, what's so special about the number 25 except that it's, you know, divisible? It's a quarter of a dollar. Yeah. Right. But because yen, there's just yen. Right. There's not a cent equivalent or a dollar. It's just, it's all yen. Right. So if you think of like 25 yen, what is the value, what is the, the use of a 25 yen coin? There isn't one. And for me, because I'm only counting in fives and ones and tens. Right. I can count yen coins really fast. And right. That's true. When I'm, when I have like a quarter and some nickels and a dime and some pennies, I feel like it takes me way longer because there's like the 25. You always have to separate the quarters out from everything else. <laughs> right, 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 right. You have to separate the quarters out and then you do them by dollars. You're right. like, you stack them in stacks of four and you're like $1, $2, $3, right. $4, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> yeah. It is, uh, it's, it's weird and it only works because we have a whole other word for our money once it's under 100. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like one that one like one dollar is the baseline, and it's not, and everything under that is a different word. Even over a hundred. I mean, like I said, K. Yeah. You say K, and also a grand. Grand. That's yeah. one that always surprises. You know, always Japanese people get confused. You know, right. Why? Why is it a grand? They're know. confused by the fact that we have so much slang for our money in general. Yeah. I actually one of the reasons I love teaching like the shopping lessons is because like money is such an interesting weird thing like American money is just so weird yeah we have names the dime is especially crazy because it doesn't say how much it is anywhere on it oh that's good I've heard that before that's that's very you know what I mean like yeah. for a Japanese person they're like dime dime yeah fucks that yeah right right, <laughs> right. you can't and and some the vending machines at the airport where you like put the money in for the cart are dimes only. Really? Yes. Well, that's insane. I've, I've never The that. airport where people are coming from everywhere else. Yeah. And it's asking you to figure out this really obscure thing. And you're looking at it going like, <laughs> how much money am I spending here? Is right. <laughs> <laughs> it is such a, like, it's just, it's almost like a middle finger to the whole rest of the world. <laughs> a, a lot of American systems feel like that. Yeah. A little bit, you know, like, Yeah. Yeah. How would you know what a dime was? Like, if you just see, like, dimes only, what is that? Yeah, that's a good point. If There's no clue on the coin. Right. I mean, really, all you can do... I guess now you could Google it. Sure. But Yeah, everything's a lot easier now that we have the world of information in our pocket. Right, but, but pre-smartphones, you'd have to just ask someone, hey, how much... And then hope that they don't lie to you. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you get somebody go, oh, that's worth one cent. <laughs> yeah. I remember... That's funny. I took, when I was 19, I took my girlfriend to Vancouver up from uh, Tacoma and because uh, we could drink legally there. And we were in this Jamaican restaurant. And I think the fact that we were like drinking heavily at three in the afternoon kind of cued in that we were, uh, we were kids coming from America. And like, and so the waiter, this Jamaican dude came over and he's like, hey, you guys are from America, right? Hey, uh, I'm going to be taking a trip there later. Can we exchange some money? And I was just like, oh. And then I thought, like, wait a minute. <laughs> like, you know, we've already changed all of our money, so we're, we're good. Thank you. Yeah. But I was just like, oh, I, yeah. Like, that was my first instance of, like, you know, somebody might be out to get me with my money if I ask a simple question about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. How is your, your danger level calibrated for, for travel? Because I'm... I don't trust anybody. It's not just international travel. Like, if I'm even in a city I've never been to in America, I don't trust anybody to help me with that. I'm like, I'll figure it out myself. I trust people more. It's weird. I, I trust people more generally in Asia than I do in America. But yeah. <laughs> like in, in Japan, I'm not really afraid somebody is going to rip me off or, like, steal from me. Yeah. But uh, in America, it's kind of dialed up. Okay. In Japan, I think I'm the same. But elsewhere in Asia, I don't necessarily feel the same way. Yeah. I, I mean, I one time I was traveling in Korea with a friend, and we, we he lived in Korea, but he lived in Busan, and and we went to Seoul together. And it was both of our first time in Seoul. We stepped off the KTX and came out of Seoul Station, and there was just a guy, um, standing like not near the street or where the cars were, just kind of standing near the entrance of the station, going like taxi, you did a taxi. Right. And my friend was like, oh, how convenient. We need we needed a taxi. Here's a guy offering taxis, and I was like, let's not get a taxi ride from that guy. <laughs> Right. Because why is he standing here? Like, I don't know anything about Korea. This might be totally normal. But because I don't know anything about Korea, I'm going to just assume that... It's I, dodgy. Yeah, I walk to the street and get in a taxi waiting at the street. Right. Yeah. That's so funny. <laughs> I also like, and I, 
talking about profiling people, like I, yeah, like Japan has definitely taught me that. Like I would never, I wouldn't be this way in America. Like I'm kind of distrustful of everybody. But in Japan, like if it's a Japanese person, I'm fine. But like if a white dude wearing a tie walks up to me and just starts randomly talking to me, I'm like, are you a Mormon? Then you're up to something. Get away from me. <laughs> like if you're, if you're a Mormon and you just want to, you know, like, because there's a lot of Mormons here, right? right. And, and so, also, like, you're, I, that's not conjecture. You're definitely speaking from experience. Because yeah. <laughs> there's a pretty good chance it's some kind of missionary. But if it's, right. but like the thing is, like if it's a Mormon, I'm fine with that. Mm-hmm. But if he's not a Mormon and he's just coming up and talking to me, then like he's up to no good. That's, <laughs> that's kind of my feeling. That's interesting. You, you'd prefer the missionary. <laughs> I would prefer the Mormon. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, do you want to take a, maybe a break? Sure. Let's go. Okay. Yeah. yeah. yeah.